have tuned in to Soul Searching, the Church of the Nativity's podcast where we explore faith through scripture, reason, and tradition. There has been a lot of conversation, writing, research, analysis, hand-wringing, and anxiety about church decline in recent decades. There was a heyday of religiosity in America in the middle of the 20th century. We have receded from that high-water mark, but it is yet to be determined if that's a problem or an opportunity. This week's episode is the second half of my conversation with Bishop Cole about Thomas Merton. And we get into peering at the current American religious landscape using Merton's writings as kind of like a lens. Admittedly, the bishop and I are both paid believers, religious professionals, if you will. And as such, this kind of winds up being a professional church geek conversation. However, I found it very compelling and insightful, so I hope you enjoy it. We end the conversation with the bishop reading one of Merton's poems that is both compelling and quite mystifying at the same time. So stay with our professional church geek conversation to the end so you can hear that. You don't want to miss it. And uh, which is just kind of, a, a, I think a, people would be surprised to know just how deeply Catholic parts of Kentucky are, because again, our stereotype is just, it's all evangelicals, it's all Baptists. So he's writing in the early 60s, deeply, deeply religious time, you know, American religion still ascendant. Um, and this is what he says in the preface. There are very many religious people who have no need for a book like this, because theirs is a different kind of spirituality. If to them this book is without meaning, that should not that should not, they should not feel concerned. On the other hand, there are perhaps people without formal religious affiliations who will find in these pages something that appeals to them. If they do, I am glad, as I feel myself a debtor to them more than to others. So it's like, were there eight people in the US without religious affiliation in 1961? And yet Merton is saying, I'm writing this book to the eight people who could like fit in a school bus. And like somehow, like, this is the reason I wrote this book. Um, you know, now you could say, you know, most people who probably read New Season Contemplation, I mean, I mean, it, it might be that most people who read this book, read this book as a part of their own personal spiritual path, and not within the context of, I'm a part of an intentional Christian community, a parish church, um, you know, a, 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 a faith circle. But at that time, somehow that he could even think about the people I'm writing this for and the audience I'm considering are these folks that I would say at the time, like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about people without religious affiliation? Like, like, we don't make people like that. Uh, and yet Merton understood, I think already, and, and he understood it in a way that, I mean, I think he dies as a 53 year old, still deeply committed to his vocation as a monk, still deeply committed uh, Catholic, but obviously deeply open. So it wasn't like he was about to pivot out of the life of the church, but but for him to appreciate some of his dialogue partners and the people that met, that maybe he was paying attention to were people who were either already outside the life of the church uh, or obviously with, with more generations to come increasingly would be. So do you think that was a critique of 
the church or a recognition of movements within culture, the broader culture? Um, I'll, I'll give a good Anglican response and I'll say both. <laughs> In that, um, obviously, you know, Merton, Merton is deeply, deeply glad to know about Vatican II. And as he's writing Nuses of Contemplation, he's writing some of this is like even a little pre-Vatican II to Vatican II. So obviously Merton is enthused and supportive for the most part of um, Vatican II in, the, in, the, in a more open world. Uh, I think, as I've discovered is true, lots of people, he was always suspicious of bishops, which I've discovered is probably a good thing to be. Um, so that, you know, I think he, and, you know, he obviously knew so, so much because of where he was in Kentucky, you know, he knew that sort of the culturally Catholic person, you know, just like we talk about, you know, we have evangelicals who kind of embrace an evangelical culture, which might be so far removed from what you and I would consider to be a truly um, committed path following the way of Jesus as much as you know, no, I consume evangelical news, or evangelical films, or evangelical books, which is kind of just a racket, right? And Roman Catholics have, we all have that racket of sort of, you know, the marketplace that is religion. And I think Merton was frustrated with that and saw that and sort of parried it, was, was willing to, to treat it as a parody. But I think he also realized in some of the activism he saw, not all of it, because I think in some of the activism he saw, he saw it as a kind of, um, reactive violence that was not creative. But I think he realized in some of the activists that he was reading and responding to, that they had kind of a commitment to what he would call, you know, a true kind of faith that would not be expressed in ways that most folks in the church would recognize, right? Um, and he gets to that in some of New Seeds of Contemplation. He talks about he has one essay called The Theology of the Devil. I think that's right. And, um, and to the, and the awareness that, you know, that often our real struggle in the life of the church is what we, oh, no, it's called the moral theology of the devil. That, you know, in some ways we think we're in the church, we think we're worshiping God. And at times, you know, we have, we have made a pact of something that is truly not, not God and truly not, um, calling us to holiness and wholeness but what we've given into is a is a parody of the church or a parody of following god uh, as you were m mentioning you know in 61 there was probably eight people who in the united states who did not have some affiliation with a house of worship and in a community of faith of some sort uh that r reminded me just recently there was a new uh pew poll that for the first time since they had been tracking this, less than half of uh, Americans uh, had identified themselves as having some sort of affiliation with a house of worship or a community of faith, and be it Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, less than half uh, of the population uh, currently has a connection that they would identify with um, that they would consider themselves to be members of, um, which is probably a lot truer number than our parochial reports. Um, though I'm very supportive of, of 
numbers and statistics and try to do clean numbers myself. But, um, uh, you know, I think uh, we all have we all have more members of our congregations than we do people who are active participants in the life of the community. Um, and so that, that, di- that dynamic that is present in the culture, I think is also present in the church and that we have a lot of people who might even identify themselves as members of the congregation or members of a house of worship of some type, but yet have no active spiritual life. And yet we have these people um, who are in, on their own accord, a significant number of people like the young man with the tattoo, like Wright Thompson, who are seeking, who are hungry for the interior life and hungry for a deeper connection with that is, which is beyond us in some way. And how can we as houses of worship, faith communities, traditions within the Christian tradition engage with those folks and feed that hunger without just going into increasing average Sunday attendance. Yeah. Um, So what's interesting, uh, Paul Quinnen is a monk at Gethsemane who I think arrived in 1958. I think he was 17 years old. They don't let 17-year-olds do that. But, you know, 17-year-old, I'm here to be a monk. And um, so when he was there, like at one point, there maybe were like 400 monks, maybe that many when he was there. He's still there. And I think if you count everybody, including all the guys in the infirmary, there are maybe 35 monks at Gethsemane. And I have said to him... um, I've said to him, you know, does it make you sad that like, you know, where did everybody go? And because I know for me, I'm, I'm a four on the Enneagram, lots of things make me sad and uh, feel deeply and all that sort of drama queen stuff. Um, but he, his take was uh, the right people are here now. And, and, and I say right, and it's not like other people were wrong, but it's like, you know, the folks who are here now are committed to this lot and like are here for here for the reasons that are probably good reasons for them to be there. That when we had 400 guys, okay, yeah, we had 400 guys, but like, you know, they didn't, yeah, it was not, it, was, it wasn't it was real. And, you know, so I think as someone who grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition that, you know, I, I think if I, if I have missed a Sunday of church, I don't recall it. I mean, just how deeply religious I have been as a person, um, I think now what's clear to me is both that I think people are just willing to be really, really honest of either I want to be a part of a house of worship or I don't. <laughs> and that we, sh- we should no longer assume anyone's there thinking I'm here because of cultural privilege. I'm here because this will help my election. Um, you know, it's like either you're here because you want to be on this path or you're not. So in some ways, you know, some of those numbers don't concern me too much. And I think all the more, and I'd say this to you as a priest in my diocese in our work together, and Merton would say this too, the, the spiritual life is about deep intention. You know, your job is to wake up and to do your work. And so that means no sleepwalking clergy, no sleepwalking lay people, no sleepwalking bishops. You know, our job is to do our work. And um, 
you know, when I look at that Pew study and I realize, I mean, it has been in my, not just my lifetime, but my adult lifetime, that the numbers have gone from as high as they've ever been to where they are now. So when I was in seminary, it was the first time I heard the word seeker sensitive. And you're going to build these seeker sensitive churches, which I now realized had a cultural assumption that everybody is seeking and everybody is seeking a house of worship. And if you get, you know, if you get the carpet just right, if you get the lights just right, if you get the message just right, if you get the parking just right, they're going to come because they're all seeking. And what I now realize, having lived in Asheville, North Carolina, which is an epicenter of spiritual but not religious people, having, having lived in Lexington, Kentucky, where I thought I was moving to a place that might be more churched, but what I realized, and I love Lexington, what I realized was, yeah, they really love Jesus after basketball, horse racing, bourbon, and the like. And so Jesus was like in the top five. And, and having moved to Knoxville and having moved to East Tennessee, and so again, there's that kind of cultural Christianity, but, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who've just, who are just not looking and they don't care how good Jason Emerson's sermons are. They don't care how good um, Layla King's sermons are, how, you know, like, you know, you can, here's this great preacher. Great. You know, it's like, they're not looking. And I think, I think, again, that either can make us deeply sad and wring our hands, or we can realize um, a part of our work is to do our work and then, and we cannot control the outcome. And I think at different times in our culture, we've been able to control the outcome that, that involves, again, a kind of violence, if you will, a kind of control over people to say, uh, you know, you have to pick one of them. You can't, you, you can't pick none of the above. You, you know, you get to, you get to choose Methodism or Presbyterianism, but you don't get to pick no. And, and people realize, actually, I can't pick no. And, and, and this is what, this is, can be hard for us in the life of the church. Understanding the picking no does not mean I am, don't have interest in the life of the spirit. And I think for us in the case we have to, if we, if we need to make a case, um, you know, to what degree do we say, at least in the Christian tradition, this Christian path really does involve other people? Uh, because if I, if I practice Christianity by myself, um, a, part of, a part of what makes it wonderful and what makes it maddening is the other people, right? Because so much of Christianity is about we fall down and get back up again, which is actually true of most world religions. Of we fall down and get back up again. And so uh, to know that... Um, and particularly after COVID, um, you know, I would say to everyone in this diocese, I'd say to everyone in any Christian tradition, everyone should treat their church as a church plant right now. Act like you're starting all over because all the cultural assumptions, all the cultural stories we tell ourselves or cliches we tell ourselves, I think they're all, I mean, they were already broken beforehand and they're like more obviously just like, yeah, they do not translate. And so whatever we're doing, has to start now because, you know, Merton is riding and goes to the monastery in the Second World War and the aftermath of the Second World War. So all of a sudden, people are like seeking meaning after the Holocaust, seeking meaning after the Second World War. You know, so the seminaries explode and churches are built left and right. And, you know, Protestant and Roman Catholic theologians are on the cover of Time magazine. And, you know, I think 1954 is considered the high watermark in American religion. I'd say right now with COVID becoming hopefully more and more post-COVID with the January 6th insurrection, with political insanity in our country, with the murder of George Floyd, 
with the murder of Breonna Taylor, that many people are going to be asking a question. They already asked the question of what just happened. You know, what what has happened to our country? What's happened to our common? What's happened to the common good? What's happened to religion? Um, and if if we're prepared to help people answer that question or to sit with that question, again, I think there's a future to the church and a, a future need for the church to be the church um, without anxiety. But to know we got to help people answer that question because I think that is the question people are asking. Um, and and I know even personally, I kind of as I continue to reflect on this past year, year and a half, the sort of what just happened question is the first thing that I kind of comes to mind for me. Uh, I agree. And um, a thought kind of related, I think, to what you said is distilled in my own behavior during COVID as a minister. I started when we when the shutdown happened and we switched to online being a computer geek myself, I was like, okay, this was why I was ordained. <laughs> you know, I, you need me to put the whole church online in a weekend. Let's do, I've been wanting to do this anyway. Let's go for it. And um, I caught myself in the first couple of months of that, of feeling a hollowness because I, everything, my frame of thinking was similar to a building with a parking lot and thinking, how do I get them in the parking lot? How do I get people into the church? I was thinking, how do I get people to consume? How do I get them? How do I get more likes, more views, more comments? You know, the the ASA of digital church, if you will. And somewhere along the line, in some conversation with somebody about digital ministry, um, they it, they flipped my thinking on it. I don't remember exactly what they said. Instead of viewing it as a way of getting more people in to view it as a way to give people more tools to give mm-hmm. to people more. And that has changed my thinking about what we're, what we've been doing as a congregation. Um, it's not think about to not even care whether, um, someone becomes part of the community, um, or, or becomes an active member or, eventually becomes the biggest pledger or brings the brownies to the next church social when we do get to have church socials again, but to think, what can I give these people? What can I give them that will in some way assist in their interaction with God? Open a door, create a pathway, uh, an invitation to contemplation, whatever it is, what can I give? And that switch from what can I get to what I give if I can be so bold is I think is a, is a framework of thinking that for the whole church in this time when so many people are choosing none of the above, Mm -hmm. it's not, okay, well, how do I get that person to be a member of my congregation? But how do I give them tools? Just make them available so that they can explore their path to God. Um, And if I truly believe, if I truly have faith that, that Christ and the Holy Spirit speaks, then if I give them the tools, I can let go of that and just trust that the Holy Spirit will bring them to Jesus and Jesus to God and will you know, help them commune with God. And it can still be quite Trinitarian and traditional um, if we just flip from how do I get to how do, how do I give? Does that make sense? Yes. And that's, I mean, several points I wanted to say 
Amen, amen. I'm not sure you're supposed to do that on a podcast, but I wanted to, want to be your amen corner. Because um, you know, to me, the New Testament is an invitation to both wake up and to grow up. And uh, I can't speak for other traditions right now, but for Episcopalians, too often what we do that we think is formation is really Christian appreciation. Mm. You know, enough, just enough to be dangerous at a cocktail party about Jesus. And so I think, I think COVID time... It's not that all of a sudden Jason Emerson has to bring in more people to nativity as much as also to realize maybe this is a moment for a lot of our folks that they woke up and grew up. So maybe, 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 and I think I've heard this sort of anecdotally that maybe your core group at nativity now have a deeper sense of who they are. And again, not just, you know, Father Jason told us what to think as much as the awareness of, you know, a part of this, a part of this call is to be awake and to grow. And to grow deeper, and and too often what what we what has what has satisfied us is if we have more numbers, we don't really care how thin or thick it is. We just want more numbers, and it's not that I want fewer numbers, uh, but I do want to have a sense of we're inviting people to grow up. And because I think particularly uh, in lots of Christian traditions, we really invite people to continue to be really immature, uh, because then maybe that allows clergy or that allows various people that we we get to kind of still be a kind of gatekeeper for their spirituality. You need to come back next week and I'll give you 50 more minutes of content as opposed to a part of this call is to help to get out of people's way. Um, there was a, in this process of becoming Bishop, the diocese talked about people want to offer their gifts to each other, but they don't know how. And I remember thinking, so probably part of my job as the bishop is to make sure there's not any obstacles for people, get the obstacles out of the way that we that we didn't intend for them to be. But um, yeah, you realize, oh yeah, we've we've been walking around that ottoman for years and people trip over that ottoman. So if we got it out of the way, then like the room's clear, right? Um, in that same sense of, you know, at times we want people to, to grow and go deeper. And yet once they start doing that, we, we, we don't know how to help them. We don't, again, we don't know how to either get out of their way or to, or to say, here are next steps to go deeper. As opposed to just, you know, if they go deeper, we think, oh, we should ordain you. <laughs> As opposed to like, no, like maybe you should just be a mature Christian and that'd be a good thing. Yes, and I, I think that lets us circle back to Thomas Merton um, and in, in, your, in the, what you talked about, you know, he came in like so many people when he came into the, uh, his conversion to the to Catholicism and to the monastery, you know, this is the most beautiful thing ever. And then the reality of that kind of forced him to grow up and view it in a more mature way. Um, and there's something for us to see in that pattern is that, yeah, when we start to see things for real, we're not going to really like everything we see. But that doesn't mean that we leave or abandon it, which is also countercultural to our, our culture right now. Um, but I, I don't want to, uh, take you over the, the time I told you we would, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up poetry and Thomas mm -hmm. Merton, um, because of your love of poetry and then he, him being a poet. And I wondered if there was a particular poem of his that you think speaks to our current moment at all or dramatically. Yeah. He, um, you know, one thing with Merton, people have to and you. So you picked up Contemplative Prayer as your first book. You know, that's a pretty. I'm impressed. I mean, I was already impressed with Jason Emerson, but I mean, that's a that's a that's some pretty 
that's Merton throwing some fastballs, right? I mean, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a very mature Merton riding. You know, some people start with Seven Story Mountain, which is autobiography, which is a beautifully written book, but uh, a very different Merton is in writing contemplative prayer decades later. Uh, so with his poetry, again, a lot of his early poetry was very much kind of devotional in a more formal, more traditional style. You know, lots of images of Mary and Christ and Golgotha and the saints. And as he matured and his monastic life matured, he wrote a poet, poet, poetry called Advice to a Young Prophet. And this is one I was going to read today, thinking about what's going on in our country now. Advice to a Young Prophet. Keep away, son. These lakes are salt. These flowers eat insects. Here, private lunatics yell and skip in a very dry country. Or where some haywire monument, some bad-faced daddy of fear commands an unintelligent rite. To dance on the unlucky mountain, to dance they go and shake the sin out of their feet and hands, frenzied until the sudden night falls very quiet and magic sin creeps secret back again. Badlands echo with omens, omens, omens of ruin. Seven are very satisfied regaining possession. Bring a little mescaline, you'll get along. There's something in your bones. There's someone dirty in your critical skin. There's a tradition in your cruel, misdirected finger, which you must obey and scribble in the hot sand. Let everybody come and attend where lights and airs are fixed to teach and entertain. Oh, watch the sandy people hopping in the naked bullseye. Shake the wildness out of their limbs. Try to make peace like John and Skins, Elijah and the timid air, or Antony and Tombs. Pluck the imaginary trigger, brothers. Shoot the devil, he'll be back again. America needs these fatal friends of God and country to grovel in mystical ashes, pretty big prophets whose words don't burn, fighting the strenuous Im imago all day long. Only these lunatics so happy chance, only these are sent. Only this an an anemic thunder grumbles on the salt flats in rainless night. Oh, go home, brother, go home. The devil's back again and magic hell is swallowing flies. Don't ask me what that means. <laughs> I think uh, that would require listening, pay attention, paying attention and lots of silence to get to what that means right now. And it will mean similar things and different things, 5, 10, 20, and hopefully uh, decades on into the future. Thank you so much, Bishop, for spending yes, time with us today. I greatly pre appreciate that. Um, and um, uh, look forward to things becoming more and more post-COVID so that you can join us in worship, hopefully this year, with people actually present. Um, I so. love people. I've discovered in the midst of COVID, you know, it'd be helpful to know, oh, well, I didn't like people anyway. But yeah, I've discovered I really like people and I've missed seeing them in the flesh. I look forward to seeing you hopefully soon in the flesh, Jason. Once again, thanks to Bishop Cole for joining the podcast, and thank you very much for joining in as well. If you came to the podcast via Facebook, please like, comment, and share it around. If you are a subscriber through iTunes, we would really appreciate a five-star rating and review. I'm Father Jason, reminding you that God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Thank you.